darkness unto light, lead me from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. As Diane just said, we have the Ask Swami session today. And the idea being that so many questions come into us from all over the world and it's really impossible to answer them individually. Uh, so we thought of having this online forum. The advantage is the questions and the answers can be shared with the whole world then. Uh, often, it's not so much a, that it is my question, I'll have to wait for my question to come up. No. Often these questions are, are something that everybody has. A lot of people have these questions. Sometimes when we listen to the questions and the answers, we get benefited. So, um, I was also told that that uh, your, the virtual audience might be a little less today. There is an India-Pakistan cricket match going on. <laughs> so people from India might be distracted. So if it's cricket and Vedanta, Vedanta always loses the match. <laughs> but that's why you see the importance of the preliminary qualifications. We call them sadhan chatushtai, the fourfold qualifications for Vedanta, Viveka, Vairagya and so forth. Uh, Vairagya means dispassion. That which is non-eternal, that which is not the ultimate goal, purpose, destiny of, of humanity. That, you'll have to step aside from that uh, in favor of spirituality, in favor of Vedanta. Um, but it's always been, it's been a perennial problem. For a perennial philosophy, a perennial problem. I have heard of this uh, it's a, uh, anecdote, but true. I, uh, there's this monk who is to come on the bank of the Ganga in a village and uh, teach Vedanta. So one of those students, a village boy, he, he, wrote, he became a monk later and he wrote this. He said, we used to go to the class and there would be people coming and sitting around the monk. Under a, he would sit under a tree and teach Vedanta. One day there were hardly anybody. I was there and one or two others and the rest of the crowd had disappeared. And the monk was shocked. What happened? Where are the rest? He said, oh, what can we say, sir? A tantric has come. He has set up class on the other side of the river. And everybody has gone there. So tantra is, is much more attractive. You get superpowers like, um, you know, you become something like Superman or Spider-Man, <laughs> whatever. Um, yes, so dispassion. The discernment between the eternal and the non-eternal and the dispassion for the non-eternal. Those are qualifications for Vedanta. They are called Viveka and Vairagya. Alright, so we shall uh, go into this and Diane will ask a few of the questions which have been selected by our team. Uh, very hard-working team. <laughs> uh, and then we will also take a few questions from the live audience present here, in-person audience. All right. So Swami, uh, the first couple of questions are on the Ashtavakra um, Gita. Uh, Diksha Sharma from India asks, I seek some clarification on Ashtavakra Samhita. The seventh verse says that you are the seer of all. The eighth verse says, drink the nectar of faith that I am not the doer. So my confusion here is, if the self is the ultimate reality and only subject, and the entire universe is just an appearance, then who is the doer? Indeed, who is the doer? You are the witness consciousness, and um, uh, you are not the doer of any action. And yet there is action going on. Who is the doer? If we are only pure consciousness and that's the only reality, what about action and the doer of action, the results of action, karma, all of that? Who is there? Who is doing what? So this, uh, these questions are fundamental. If you confront these questions and make a breakthrough here, you will be able to grasp the essence of Advaita Vedanta. It's a very good question. I think... Diksha is referring to the 7th and 8th verses of the first chapter of Ashtavakra. It says, Drashtasi, you are the witness of all. 
and the next verse says you can be convinced have drink the you know the nectar of faith means have firm conviction that you are actually not the doer of of karma how do we understand this then who is the doer of karma i'll give you two examples and this will make it a little more clear hopefully one is say electricity and you can see all the light here it's it's because of electricity shining through the through the bulbs are shining because electricity um, enables them to do so and if you were to switch on the fans uh, you would get air breeze from the fans and an electric heater will give you the same electricity will give you heat so if you ask who is the doer of all these deeds giving light who gives light here and who gives uh, the breeze here who gives heat here who is that omnipotent thing <laughs> it's, it's electricity through multiple devices but in electricity by itself does it shine does it give you a cool breeze does it heat up the room no it doesn't it's not supposed to that's not its inherent correct characteristic but it can power the devices that do so similarly consciousness brahman atman our real nature um in conjunction with the mind and the senses it lights up the mind and the senses and you become a knower you the witness the witness and the knower make a distinction witness and knower in sanskrit sakshi and pramata witness don't take it in the sense of an act of witnessing just take it as like light shining so consciousness shines that's its very nature it's not doing any activity it's just being itself but when that shining is in proximity to the mind and uh, the senses you see where did the mind and senses come from put it aside for the time being we'll see later but in proximity with the mind and the senses it becomes a seer and uh, something that hears and touches and tastes and smells and um, thinks and remembers and desires and knows and so the witness is now the knower when you put a layer of mind and sensory organs over it put a layer of the motor organs that very consciousness which is the witness consciousness through the mind through the body uses the motor organs to walk and talk and you know do all of that it becomes the doer another example would be um say a dream suppose you dreamt that you were walking down broadway now after waking up what would you say that oh it was a, just a dream i was not in broadway i was not walking i was just happily sleeping on my bed but if you take the dream experience and in the dream experience you ask who was walking you would say well if you press me on that i am the only one who was walking not only that the shopkeeper who was selling the goods the uh, actor on broadway who was uh, reading out his lines all that i was basically if you if you press me but ultimately none of that because they are all appearances in the dreamer's mind similarly from the perspective of consciousness the world the body the senses the mind all of them are appearances in consciousness not very difficult to understand and just compare it with the dream example in your own dream the mind by itself does it not appear as a dream world does it not appear as a body in the dream and the mind and sensory system in the dream in your dream do you not feel do you do you say that in the dream i can't see anything because after all i'm dreaming there are no eyes here to see <laughs> no yes there is a world to see and there are eyes to see there are sounds to hear there are ears to hear and so and so forth and all of that the objects of the senses and the senses themselves are all appearances in the dreamer's mind similarly everything here is an appearance in consciousness so to the answer to your question um who is that who knows who is that who does any actions ultimate answer nobody because there's ultimately nothing to be known and no, no action which is being done it's an appearance but 
If that seems too much and you want a straight answer to, no, there is action. Who is doing it? You are doing it. But I am pure consciousness. I do not do anything. Correct. But with the layer of the mind and the senses and the body appearing, from that perspective, you alone are the doer. Who else is doing? If you introduce one more factor, God, the God of religion, then you attribute everything to God. God with the power of Maya does everything. And we are just here for the ride. God is, what is the thing that Jesus take the wheel, there's a song. So God takes the wheel. That is true. If you don't want to introduce God language and yet you don't want to go to all the way to the extreme of Advaita saying that nothing is happening and no one is doing anything. In that case, nature is doing, it's a very scientifically acceptable position. Material nature is doing everything. You are consciousness, the witness of the activity of material nature. What is material nature doing? Whole universe, Big Bang till now, created by material nature. Body, created, maintained, activated by material nature. Material nature is Prakriti. From the breathing to the flow of blood in our veins, to the activity of the brain and the neurons, even the mind, all of that is nature. Very much acceptable by science. Only thing that we will abstract from this is that you, the consciousness, are the witness of the activities of nature, or the experiencer of the activities of nature. You are not a product of those activities. This is the only where, place where we will very justifiably differ from the reductionist materialist worldview. Whose worldview is this? Sankhya. This is a Sankhyan worldview, which differentiates between consciousness and its objects. All objects are in the realm of matter, and you are consciousness. So these are different ways in which you can answer this question. Yes. So uh, Anita Aya from Seattle also has a question on the Ashtavakra Gita. I had a question on a couple of verses of Ashtavakra Gita in chapter 7 and chapter 15. I am using verse descriptions from Thomas Byram below. In chapter 7, verse 4, verse 4 states, I am not in the world, the world is not in me. I am pure, I am unbounded, free from attachment, free from desire, still, even so am I. In chapter 15, verse 6, it states, For see, the self is in all beings, and all beings are in the self. Know you are free, free of I, free of mine, be happy. At the outset, the first two lines of both above verses seem to contradict themselves, but I believe they are saying the same thing in a different way. Is my understanding correct? They seem to contradict themselves. They do not seem to contradict. They are flat-out contradictions. <laughs> in one verse, Ashtavakra says that I am free of the world. I am not in the world. The world is not in me. There is no universe in me, no external world, no body, no mind, nothing. I am an unbounded, limitless consciousness, not just I. You might say, Ashtavakra, you are nuts. He is saying, you are that. And in this other verse he says, what does he say? The, all the world is in me, uh, everybody is in me. Second one. In all beings, and all beings are in the self. The self is in all beings, and all beings are in the self. First he says, I am not in the world, not in all beings, not in the world, and the world is also not in me. And now he says, the self is in all beings, and all beings are in the self. You often come across this language in the Upanishads in the Gita. The self in all beings, and all beings in the self. Flat out contradiction. The world is not in me. The world is in me. In the Bhagavad Gita, there's a chapter, um, the ninth chapter. It's called the, um, the Royal Secret, the Royal Knowledge. Raja Vidya, Raja Guhya Yoga. The Yoga of the Royal Secret, Royal Knowledge. What's this secret? What's this knowledge? Krishna says that, Matsthani um, Sarvabhutani, in me all beings are there. One verse. The next verse he says, Nachamatsthani bhutani pashyame yoga maishwaryam. All beings are not in me. And he puts them together, one after another. And then he says, This is the magic of my yoga. 
How is this possible? It's flat out contradiction. And yet this must be grasped. It's absolutely logical. And you will see, it makes complete sense. When we grasp this, we grasp Advaita Vedanta. One uh, sadhu in Uttarakhand, he said, I heard, heard him say this, Jab do vipareet baat ek saath samaj aavegi, apko pakad When these two contradictory statements will be understood, not accepted, not believed, not in a Zen sense, a very cool thing to say. No, absolute, understood absolutely logically. And you'll see how clear and logical it is. It must be so. Then he says, then you will understand Advaita Vedanta. So very good question. We must confront this. This will open up the heart of Advaita Vedanta to us. What does it mean to say that all beings are in me first and then say that all beings are not in me? It's not difficult to understand. Um, I remember this very beautiful lake in British Columbia and in, in near Vancouver, Loon Lake. Early in the morning, I was taking a walk there, and you've seen this. Diane has seen this. Yes, it's a crystal clear lake without a, a ripple of water, a ripple on the, on the surface of the water. Absolutely crystal clear. And there, if you look into the lake, you will see, you know, it's surrounded by forests and hills. You will see the hills and the forest. You will see um, the blazing blue sky above. Everything you will see in the lake. In the lake you will see the sky. In the lake you will see the trees. In the lake you will see the hills. Um, of course, these are reflections. Now, think of the lake itself. In the lake, all of it is there. The sky and the trees and the, and the hills. And yet it is true that none of it is there. If you actually touch the lake, what will you find? Water. You touch the sky in that lake, what will you find? Water. You touch the hill in that lake, what will you find? Water. Touch the trees in that lake, which appear in that lake. What will you find? Water. Obviously, you will say, Swami, these are reflections. And I can see the question in your eyes. It is a reflection. There is a real sky and a real hill and a real tree all around. Abstract that, bracket that out, keep that away. Why? You will say, you will protest. Why should I do that? Remember, it's an example. Sri Ramakrishna would say, Upama Agdeshi. An example is meant to prove a point. An example is not supposed to be exactly like what it is showing. In that case, it wouldn't be an example. It would be that thing. X is an example of Y. It's only because X and Y are different, you can use one example, one as an example of the other, if, if, uh, to, to say something about the other thing. But go further. I mean, even here in the lake example, the lake can honestly say, where is the sky and the, about the reflections? Sky and the, and the hills and the trees, the lake can say, they are all in me. But wait a minute, that's not the end of it. The message is still there, that none of them are in me. Because in me, what is there? Water and only water. They all appear in me. You can get an even better example, the dream example, where, uh, take the example of the man walking down Broadway. Now when you wake up, you say, Broadway was in me and uh, all the people there were in me, and the sky and the road and the buildings were in me. I myself was walking down Broadway. I was in me. In me means in me the dreamer, the dreamer's mind. And yet, I can say, none of them were in me. How can a street be in the mind? How can actually a physical concrete building be in the mind? How can people, living beings be in the mind? No, they were all appearances in the mind. They were all dreamt up by the mind. They were imaginations in dreams, objects of fiction, fictitious. Can you not honestly say they were all in me? See, how does it work? When we are in the dream, these things appear separate from me. It seems I am walking down Broadway. Broadway is separate from me. The buildings are separate from me. And all those people are outside me. When I wake up from the dream, can I not honestly say with astonishment, 
Wow, they were not outside me. All of that was in me. When I was dreaming, it was in me. So first, everything is outside me, just like what it looks like right now. It looks like this right now. The people are outside me and the building is outside me. Obviously, the chair is outside me and I'm sitting on it. There's an external world outside my awareness, which I'm experiencing through my awareness. That's what it feels like, step one. But when we wake up from a dream, what happens is whatever seemed external to me now is understood to be entirely internal to me. I imagined it all in my dream. Step three, you will also say honestly, truly none of that was really in me because they were imaginations. There really wasn't a building in my head. There really, there's no space, even the most empty head. There's no space for Broadway to be there. And by the way, all this, I'm not making up on the spur of the moment. These are arguments taken from one of the classics of Advaita Vedanta, Gaudapada's Mandukya Karika, the second chapter. Um, Gaudapada, who was Shankaracharya's teacher's teacher, lived about 1400 years ago. The second chapter, Vaitatya Prakarana. There he gives these arguments, comparing the waking world with the dream world. So from that perspective, can we say, all of this is in me the consciousness. And because they are all appearances in consciousness, there's actually not a physical world of concrete and um, you know, um, trees and cats and dogs in consciousness. They are appearances in consciousness. What is the consequence of this? Tremendous consequence. First consequence is oneness. When you have an external world, we are this tiny creature only. And they are all outside me. They are different from me. I interact with them. Some are friendly, some are indifferent, some are inimical to me. But from the perspective of consciousness, and they are all in me, they are all nothing but me. I am one with all of them. Or they are all one with me. All the living beings, not only all human beings, the ones I like and the ones I do not like, they are all one with me. They are nothing other than me. All the other living beings also, all the non-living entities, chairs and tables, sky and earth, they are all nothing other than me. I alone appear as all of them. There is oneness. There is limitlessness. If all of it is in me or appearing in me, where is my limit? Where do I stop? You see, understand the question. Um, in the common sense waking world, where do I stop? I end here. Upanishad says, at the tip of my nails. Up to my fingertip, I am there. Beyond that, not me. It's other than me. It's the other. That's the common sense approach. But from this perspective, and think about your dream experience. That where is the limit? Where is you, the dreaming mind, where is your limit? In the dream world. Nowhere. Because everything that you see in the dream world, you have not stopped there. You pervade all of it. Because it's all appearing in you. So this entire waking world, and the dream world, and the deep sleep blankness, it all appears in you, the consciousness. There is no limit to you. You are, not only everything is one with you, you are also limitless. These appearances have beginnings or ends. These appearances have beginnings or ends. But consciousness itself does not have a beginning or end. In consciousness, things have their beginning or end. So you are without beginning and end. You are eternal. You are, the universe is one with you. You are uh, infinite. You are eternal. Limitless and eternal. Whom will you hate? Whom will you love? Whom will you be partial to? Because they are all you. Who is your enemy? Who is your friend? What is it here in this world which you have not achieved, which you would like to have? Because it's all you. What is it in this world which you hate, which you would like to get rid of? It is all you. But then that's a big problem. All horrible things are me, but ultimately they are not you. They are appearances in you. Just like a nightmare might be in you, but it's not real. And that's the relief, that it's not real. It's an appearance. Beginnings and ends. 
all those we meet with and you have a relation and then we get separated from them they are all one with you they appeared as that person and at one time they have gone now but really they have not gone that which appeared as that other person with whom you know father mother husband wife children and now they are not there but that appearance is not there that which appeared is still there that is you it's a very high point of view but it this is the way to understand advaita vedanta to apparently contradictory things all beings are in me and amazingly none of it is in me i am free of all beings and that's not just krishna that's all of us we are that reality right now good so these notice these two questions which came up can you see that they are basically the same question the first question was that i am pure consciousness i do not do anything and yet it is true that you that pure consciousness you are the only knower that there is the only seer the one who hears smells tastes tastes touches the one who thinks remembers um, desires loves hates is none other than you that consciousness the doer of all actions you alone are the doer and yet it is true to say you are not the doer of any action at all that was the first question and the second question is all beings are in me but all beings are not in me they are the same question you see if you can see that one is from an technically if you say one is from an epistemological perspective the other one is from an ontological metaphysical perspective one is from the perspective of knowledge knowing and also doing and the other one is from the perspective of being existence <coughs> all beings should we have somebody to ask a question is there anybody who wants to ask so many people why don't you come up here uh, or where, where should they come, come there come here come here and ask the question tell us your name and then ask the question yes while you're asking the question you can take it off. hello swami my name's ashwin um i was curious about your thoughts on the role of psychedelics and spiritual and mystical experiences uh especially also for example the role of soma um or the kukion in ancient greek mysteries to uh, occasion um the the theory that they, that it might have been a psychedelic potion or substance that arjuna consumed to have the vision that he had in chapter 11 of the gita all right the question about the role of psychedelics in spiritual life now um you might say this is a peculiarly american phenomenon or or a very california phenomenon but it's not really it goes all the way back to ancient india in you'll be surprised to know patanjali yoga in the yoga sutras it's mentioned <coughs> that one may induce some of these experiences through the use of certain psychedelic substances now let's go a little deeper into this um a couple of examples right now for example we have the well known um neuroscientist christoph koch who is the chief scientist of the paul allen brain institute so i was listening to his talk on consciousness and he's been experimenting with psychedelics um there is one which is very popular among researchers now silo psilocybin i keep forgetting the name um so he's done that and he said i have had extraordinary experiences and that has somehow convinced him about the importance of consciousness itself another very famous example was um um aldous huxley a long way back about 40 50 years his book classic book the perennial philosophy unfortunately not many people read it now it's a classic collection wonderful collection um he was deeply connected with the vedanta society of southern california uh and in fact he used to give talks in uh, in uh, hollywood in the vedanta society there he was a disciple of swami prabhavananda ji but um he experimented with in those days lsd and swami prabhavananda ji actually warned him against doing that they differed on that but he swami warned him against using psychedelics all right what can it do and what can it not do 
what it can do in fact the only thing that it can do is it can induce extraordinary experiences you can i suppose you can have visions see lights and sounds and the sense of a can also have the sense of a tremendous breakthrough you know like an intuitive understanding feelings of oneness um in fact which echo what is mentioned in the in the texts in the yoga and vedanta texts now what does vedanta say about it and yoga say about it from the yogic perspective yes these insights these mystical experiences give you the knowledge which yoga aims at so with this experience you will realize that i am not the body and mind and all of this is illumined by me the one consciousness and so on so some kind of breakthrough might happen now the point that yoga will make there is two twofold here one is that these insights can be and should be generated by yoga practice not psychedelics why not yoga practice is long and arduous psychedelics is fast you just pop a pill and you become enlightened <laughs> um because that long and arduous practice of yoga makes the mind satvik uh, pure and able to hold on to these spiritual experiences and benefit from them then it becomes a truly spiritual experience otherwise it's like a flash in a pan one gets an extraordinary feeling feeling of elevation feeling of insight something tremendous understanding something amazing and then you are back to normal with a thud you know back to the external world unable to benefit from that how do you know you are unable to benefit from that you will see no significant changes are coming in our life there are ultimately no significant spiritual takeaways from in, in the sense of our thinking our speech and our activity in the world you still behave like the same old person worse the second uh, thing that yoga will say for this kind of practices it can be actually positively damaging it can be addictive yeah, often many of these substances were highly addictive and they can be damaging to the personality the very personality which is seeking to be enlightened it can instead of take, making you satvik it can push you down to rajas and tamas also what is the state of an addict is it satvik rajasik or tamasik it's tamasik which is just the opposite of what you are trying to uh, attain so the take away from the yogic perspective is that yes they do induce certain experiences which are very similar to spiritual experiences but they will not be classified as spiritual experiences because they the mind is not capable of benefiting from them the personality is not capable of benefiting from them after psychedelics does one become a saint does the sinner become a saint no emphatically after long arduous spiritual practice struggle of yoga does a, a sinner become the saint quite possible that is the goal the second thing would be that it can be actually positively damaging so this is the take away from the uh, yoga system but let's go deeper now i'm going to the vedanta or advaita system advaita will make the preliminary point that what's the point of all these experiences the point of experiences is to show you the truth of the, of the claims of the spiritual path that you are not the body not the mind that you are the um, limitless consciousness this should become clear to you that knowledge is the take away not a series of um, wonderful visions see one of the problems of the new age movement is while it is liberal while it is open while it is uh, peaceful uh, compared to the old religions but the new age movement also sometimes becomes a kind of experience chasing you know pill popping experience chasing nowhere more so than our central park here <laughs> so uh but experience chasing was not the goal of any of the ancient systems even the patanjali yoga system which talks about samadhis and various mystical experiences the goal is enlightenment not seeing lights or visions what advaita would say is that 
ultimately what have you got when you see a burst of light or even when you have the feeling the oceanic feeling of oneness with everything what advaita would say is that note the same consciousness the same awareness you who did not see those things earlier are now seeing those extraordinary things you are having those extraordinary experiences very soon you will not have those ex- experiences again until you pop the next pill <laughs> so that same consciousness is there it is to that one consciousness that experiences both extraordinary and ordinary appear the experience the content of the experience is not important it is the one which is having those experiences one which is illumining and revealing those experiences that is important notice in advaita vedanta what we do we never chase extraordinary experiences the method of the seer and the seen the method of the five sheets the method of the waking dreaming deep sleep waking dreaming deep sleep are they extraordinary experiences so no they are daily experiences of everybody all of us have those experiences you're awake now it's getting a little hotter here you might fall asleep very soon so waking dreaming deep sleep uh, 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 they are all um, ordinary experiences and advaita vedanta claims that these ordinary experiences are enough uh, they are enough to give you enlightenment how if ordinary experiences were enough to give us enlightenment everybody would be enlightened because everybody has an ordinary experience not the experience by themselves experience and the investigation of those experience experiences by advaita you need waking dreaming deep sleep absolutely but with that you must add mandukya mandukya karika you need the physical body the the vital body the the mental body the intellectual body uh, the the causal body you know i'm talking about the five sheets the annamaya pranamaya manomaya vigyanamaya anandamaya that's all there already nothing mystical about it it's all there right now all of us have it right now plus you need the taittiriya upanishad to guide you through it to the realization that you are the witness consciousness so no ordinary experience is sufficient for enlightenment in advaita vedanta you don't need to pop pills you don't even need to do extraordinary efforts to attain certain peculiar mystical experiences and there's a special advantage today special advantages even if one has extraordinary mystical experiences a scientist a neuroscientist a doctor might just say i don't doubt you have those experiences suppose you have the experience of oneness of the universe you feel one with everything the doctor or the, sci- the neuroscientist will simply say that that's because um, you had certain neurochemicals from uh, affected your brain that way you felt that that does not mean the universe is one with you it just continues to be the same old universe you felt it just because you feel something does not mean it's real but what does advaita do advaita does not use extraordinary experiences to claim that the universe is one no it uh, what it does is it uses ordinary experience and then reason logic rigorously argued logic to show you the universe must be one with you uh, from the perspective of consciousness not from the body perspective that is much more acceptable that is much more at least much more difficult to refute you can go to the same doctor same neuroscientist and you can do that actually it's being done now and uh, tell them we are not talking about mystical experiences we are not talking about popping pills and psychedelics but let's just take the experience which you doctor you uh, professor you have it and i have it and then reason on that and you come to this conclusion the same conclusion yeah so that's my answer thank you so much uh we'll come to you next Uh, now we can take a question from the audience uh, internet audience uh, this question is on bhakti from raghav kumar why is the path of bhakti supposed to be dualistic rather than non-dualistic why is the path of bhakti supposed to be dualistic rather than non-dualistic well in a very preliminary way it's uh, it's pretty reasonable um I love somebody. The moment you say 
I love. Immediately some people will ask, whom do you love? What do you love? There must be an object of love. I love what? You can even say I love everybody. But still, there must be something that you love. The moment you do that, there, is, there, is, there are two. There is the lover and there is the loved. What you love, it must be in some sense separate from you. Even when you say, I love myself, it would be a peculiar way of putting it, but it might be um, all right. But there also, it is I, the experiencer, I, the knower, loving something about myself. There must be some, ob some quality, something that I am loving. So there is a sense of dualism always in love. And nothing wrong with it. That enables love to exist. Now, can love be non-dualistic? Yes. Notice, the very tendency of love is oneness. It's not separation. It may start with two. But any kind of love actually unites the lover and the loved. So there's this funny story. Swami Vivekananda right here in, in uh, the United States. Uh, he once came to um, his, uh, the place where he was staying and told the lady who was the, uh, you know, the, with whom he was staying, this devotee. You know, I have fallen in love. And the lady laughed and said, Who is the lucky woman, Swamiji? And he, and he said, Oh, it's not a woman. Uh, it's organization. <laughs> but it must be something. So there is a separation, sense of separation. And that generates love. But that love tends to oneness. Um, in Advaita also bhakti is possible. There is an Advaita bhakti which is possible. Not theoretically, you see it in the lives of great masters of non-duality. Um, they realize I am one with Brahman but they are full of devotion for God. From a distance, logically it seems to be contradictory. You are one with God, then whom, who is loving whom? But bhakti is entirely possible. If um, after Advaitic knowledge, one can walk and talk and eat and drive and do everything and give talks, <laughs> all of that, why can you not have devotion for God? So it is possible. Uh, in Advaita Bhakti, what happens is, um, you realize your oneness with the ultimate reality, I am Brahman, but then this world of difference, it appears. You know it is all one reality, you know it, but it still appears as different and you still appear as one person in this vast world. From that perspective, you can act in the world and you do act in the world and you can also have devotion for God. That oneness you, you realized, I am that reality, it now appears to you as your beloved God. Sri Ramakrishna put it beautifully, he said to Swami Akhandananda, his, his disciple, what is the relationship between bhakti and knowledge? He said in Bengali, Whoever is your chosen deity, that is the self itself, that is Brahman for you, your, your own self. See, Atma, I am the self and my, I realize the infinitude of myself, that is Advaita Vedanta. That's a very simple way of putting it. I realize my own infinitude, that is Advaita Vedanta. Infinitude means limitlessness. And bhakti is, there is God, I have faith in God, uh, I worship God, rituals, prayer, puja, what not, devotion, songs. So they seem to be two different things. Here Sri Ramakrishna brings them together. That Krishna or Kali whom you worship, you visualize in your heart and repeat the mantra and have love and devotion for, for God in that form. That chosen deity. And the Advaitic Atman, pure consciousness, they are one and the same. They seem to be two different things because of the intervention of a name and form and, um, you know, Nama Rupa Vyavahara, name, form and function. So Advaita Bhakti is entirely possible. There's a beautiful saying, um, Bodhat Prat Dvaitam Mohaya Prapte Manishaya Bhakti Artham Kalpitam Dvaitam Advaita Dapisundaram. Very beautiful saying, it means before enlightenment, before the realization I am Brahman, duality, separation, leads to samsara, moha, delusion. I am only this body, this person, and they are all separate from me. And there is this world, 
This is our common sense approach. It leads to delusion. It leads to samsara. It leads to suffering. After enlightenment, what is enlightenment? I am Brahman. I am this limitless existence consciousness bliss. After enlightenment, if you again bring in deliberately bhakti artham kalpitam dvaitam, kalpitam dvaitam and imagine duality. And it's easy to bring it in because it appears like that. It appears like a world out there. Though it is one reality, but it appears to be a separate world. There appear to be separate people. Once this is, is accepted, you, you bring it in. And then, why would you maintain it? Why would you give it any importance? Bhakti artham. This world of duality for samsari people, for worldly people, is the world which worldly people inhabit, where they seek their pleasure, where they try to avoid their pain. But for the devotee, for the enlightened person, this world of difference is the occasion and the possibility of bhakti, of love. So bhakti artham kalpitam dvaitam and imagined a superimposed, a virtually generated duality. You act, it is accepted in order to love God. Why would you do that? It says advaita sundaram. It is more beautiful than non-duality. Non-duality is kind of dry. All the non-dual masters will be annoyed with me for saying that. You notice, when you say joy in non-duality, ananda, bliss, what kind of ananda are we looking at there? Um, it is explained as limitlessness, purnatva, completeness. Since I am whole, since I am limitless, there is nothing that I could want. But that kind of joy, that kind of uh, fulfillment is a very peaceful um, a very philosophical kind of peace. It is not the delight you feel in, you know, when you chant Hare Ram, Hare Krishna and sing and dance. That's a different kind of delight. So to taste that delight, there must be a component of dualistic bhakti there. Dualistic, not ultimately dual, dual but dualistic bhakti. And all this explanation is just a sort of theoretical way of, you know, churning... Uh, trying to get understand it. The best way is to look at the lives of enlightened people. Even in the greatest of jnanis, non-dual, masters of non-duality, you will see a component of bhakti there. Hmm. Swami Ranganathanandaji, who was the 13th president of our order. So he was a great Vedantin. He toured more than 60 countries in those days and uh, giving talks on Vedanta everywhere. You felt that he was a person firmly centered in Vedanta and when he was the president of our order one of the things that the president of the order does in Belurmat our main monastery is every morning the president goes to the temple of Sri Ramakrishna the temple of Holy Mother and so on the temples there it's part of the routine but that Swami would not Swami Ranganathanandaji would not do that every day so we thought maybe it's a health issue or something or maybe he doesn't want to because he's Vedantini for him temples and images and puja might be secondary so we are foolish, immature. We make this clear distinction, you know, that is non-dualism, this is dualism. So I asked one of his uh, uh, sevaks, sevaks means the assistant monks, or the young monks who uh, work with the president, uh, what, was, what was going on? And he said, oh no, the problem was when he would go into the temple of Sri Ramakrishna, it was difficult to bring him out of that. He would keep saying, five minutes more, five minutes more, let me stay, a little more, a little more. It's not that the knowledge of non-duality kills devotion. Not at all. It makes devotion real. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, I have four kinds of devotees. Couple of them are worldly in the sense that they want things in the world. People are in trouble, in suffering, um, grieving, uh, in sorrow. They, they are devoted to God. That's one kind. And they are devotees. The second kind is, they are alright, they have no problem. But they want something in the world, something better, something more. You know, more power, more riches, more um, let my book be a bestseller and so on and so forth. <laughs> Things like that. They are also devotees, but they want something. And then there's a third one, the spiritual seeker, which would be people like who are here, us. Those who are seeking God realization. And then he says there is a fourth kind of devotee. Krishna says, who is devoted to me, who? Jnanicha, the enlightened one. The one who has realized, I am Brahman. You, O Krishna, and I, we are not different. We are the one reality, the one limitless consciousness. 
And Krishna says, that person is also my devotee. And then he goes on to say, they are all dear to me, but dearest to me, closest to me is the enlightened one. Why? He, very beautiful verse. He says, for I never disappear from his sight and he is ever with me. For the rest, what happens is, it's a matter of belief, of faith, of psychological support, or a spiritual quest. I must have God-realization. All of that is fine. But for the enlightened one, I am real. He knows me in truth. And I, he is always in me. He or she is always in me. So, bhakti after enlightenment. Bhakti after non-duality. It's, it's entirely possible. When you say, why bhakti is supposed to be dualistic, there's nothing, there's a, a sort of a, a hint of, isn't it some, are you saying it's a little lower? No. Dualistically, non-dualistically, we are coming in touch with the same reality. Alright, one more question. There is another question on bhakti. Yes. Manoj Sahu asks, Swamiji, you said that God-fearing is not about bhakti. But most of the pujas and myths in Hinduism are all about do this or do that, otherwise God will punish you. Why this tradition? So at one point, I think in the retreat, I had said that fear of God is not bhakti. But I'd also said that bhakti or devotion to God may start with fear. God is awesome. <laughs> In the original meaning of the word uh, and also in the American meaning of the <laughs> word awesome. God is awesome. If you can conceive of God, you know, when we first approach the very idea of God, it, is, uh, it can induce deep uh, reverence and can induce fear also. So many um, dualistic religions, theistic religions start by inculcating fear of God. But what is the objection to that? The objection is fear is uh, not a good friend to love. Yeah. The ultimate objection, uh, the ultimate goal being love of God, adoration of God, worship of God. Uh, fear is not a good path to go. It may start there, but quickly it must proceed from fear to awe, to reverence, to love, yeah. to adoration, to worship. So, look at the, uh, the gradations given in, in the path of bhakti. First, it starts with shantabhava. Shantabhava means uh, something like the Advaitin has, a, an approach of complete calm and serenity in the presence of God. But higher than that is dasya bhava. The Lord is my master. I am thy servant. That's higher than the shantabhava. But that's closer. From a calm philosophical contemplation of the vastness, awesomeness of the divine to the divine is a personal relationship. So the beauty of bhakti is, in, in Vedanta what we do is, we divinize our human relations and, um, and humanize our, uh, our relation with, with God. Uh, we um, divinize our relations with the human. With everybody we see, we see the divinity in you. We see God in you. And with God, we have a human relationship. So, master and servant. Thou art my Lord, I am thy servant, is a human relationship. Higher than that, Sakya Bhava. Not master and servant, friend. Notice we are coming closer. Friend. From Shanta, the peaceful attitude of a philosophical contemplation, to Dasya, the servant and master relationship, to friends. The Lord is my friend. Buddy. Then you go further. Vatsalya. The Lord is my child. So, baby Krishna or you know, Gopala or the baby Rama, Ramlala or the Divine Mother as a little girl or the baby Jesus. So, what is the point of seeing God as a child? It is to develop this Vatsalya Bhava. Vatsalya means the love of a parent towards God. So that love of parent towards the child is now um, towards God. Now, if you think of God as your child, you don't go and pray to the child for things. You, your whole thing is to take care of the child. 
you are overwhelmed with love and protectiveness and you know a nourishing attitude towards the child and uh, imagine having that to god <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing but see how much closer it has become and as we progress this way all the paraphernalia the power the glory the awesomeness the fearsomeness of god drops away god tries to come close to us become as ordinary and as close as possible that was the secret of the holy mother she seemed as motherly as simple as your mother back in the village uh, a typical village mother in calcutta in the late 19th century and she was the divine mother herself so the purpose of appearing like that is to draw people closer and then the even higher than that is the madhura bhava the relationship between the lover and beloved radha and krishna and so on so all of these attitudes you see how they are bringing people closer and, uh, and closer to god and the fear component drops away and the love increases so uh, yes so fear is it might be preliminary but it's not a, ultimately it's not it's something that you have must overcome and move ahead in the path of bhakti and then the question he asked was about how in the stories uh, in hinduism we find god is it's full of do's and don'ts and god is the punisher all that is very preliminary not that in those stories there's much of do's and don'ts and and god is the punisher god is the punisher is is a sort of um, a symbolic way of saying good and bad are causal we set into motion causes and effects this is the law of karma good good bad bad and none escape the law vivekananda says this good actions lead to pleasant results um, bad actions lead to unpleasant results and then um, you cannot so this and these results are given by god in a theistic system we always think of god as karmadhyaksha as the lord of karma the one who gives the results of karma yes uh, can we have one question from the uh, do you remember your question yes to come <laughs> Hello, Swami. Thanks. Tell us your. Uh, my name is Raj. Uh, I'm from Chicago. Uh, so one of my uh, questions is uh, very similar to the initial questions that we took, and it's to do with that uh, popular example of uh, clay pot. Uh, so now I understand that I'm. uh this clay and that's that's the only absolute truth and that's what matters uh and uh and the form that we are currently it's it's not permanent and um it's it's a lower plane of existence if we may call that uh now my question is how do i realize what i've turned into uh whether it's a clay pot or a sculpture or something else uh because to live in this um in this material world or maya uh we have to realize um i'm sorry i'm referring to my notes just because i want to have this sure just read it <laughs> so unless i don't know that uh how uh, how would i perform my karma uh say if i'm a sculpture and not a pot then there is no point in trying to pour water into uh into it uh likewise if dharma is the rule of this material or maya world aren't all those rules made by the pots and not necessarily by the clay all right if i understand let me stop you right there and see if i'm understanding the question um you see that the knowledge that it is all clay uh does not Uh, erase the knowledge of the different parts so for example the gold and ornament example the realization that it is all gold um, still enables you to recognize a necklace as a necklace a bracelet as a bracelet and a ring as a ring after realizing that it is all gold you can still put the necklace on your neck and the bracelet on your wrist and the ring on your finger um, technically what is meant here is nama roopa vyavahara name form and function they continue after realizing that it's a movie 
um, the actors uh, in the movie continue to play the role the hero plays the role of the hero hero the villain plays the role of the villain and the car remains as a car and the street remains as a street they don't start switching uh, roles because they realize oh it's a movie we can do whatever we want no uh, the movie still follows its own script but what you realize is that there is an underlying reality which is um, the screen and what we saw which seemed to be the reality is an appearance these are the things that we realize similarly here what seems to be a fractured and scattered world people are different from me and there is good and bad and this this is the final reality which we are seeing we begin to see that there is an underlying reality this existence consciousness bliss and i am that from that perspective i can navigate my way in this world much better you have strength you have freedom you are not afraid uh, you are not subject to delusion that this thing i must have otherwise my life is unfulfilled no 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 they are all appearances in you this thing this disease or this problem this old age and death terrible my i am ruined finished what is the point of it all no 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 you are still that infinite reality uh, so even if it comes it's not a problem the negative things the positive thing if one does not get it it's still not a problem so you can navigate your way through life in fact you can do it much better is this what you were asking uh yes uh, but uh earlier uh, you were mentioning about the dispassion that's that's what i think uh, is kind of happening with me like knowing uh, knowing this truth it's i mean i only see two options like either i'm not passionate about anything i don't want to do anything anymore or uh, i just can do whatever i want and so it it kind of seems to take uh take one to either extreme uh, i see uh, the question there is this is something that many people ask but when i begin to understand this i seem to lose passion and drive for things in the world hmm. is this right is this wrong am i making a mistake no you're right that losing the passion and drive for things in the world is a very good thing <laughs> enough of the rat race <laughs> there uh, see you must take a stand ultimately this pursuit of things in the world um is it uh, worthwhile you will see that has it been worthwhile for me so far last 20 years of my life 40 years 50 years 60 years of my life lifetime after lifetime people have done this has it ever given fulfillment to anybody it has not therefore why should i invest so much in it that it will it is the thing my job my relationship my vacations my gadgets my hobbies these are the things which will give me fulfillment in life they won't there are only two possible outcomes of pursuing anything in the world either you will not get what you want and lead to frustration or you will get what you want and lead to a mild disappointment <laughs> so what is the way out the way out is to be centered in this reality um in uh, the realization that i am brahman and then take life as it comes to do what there's beautiful verses in yoga vashishta i think after enlightenment what about work is the enlightened one one does what has to be done done with a smile uh-huh. that is a much better way of living don't worry it's not that you will lose much in the world not much nothing really huge will will change in the world it will go on it is all determined by your past karma so it will keep coming good and the bad will both keep coming your fulfillment will be within see why we are worried is if i don't have passion and drive to do the things i was doing earlier we won't i lose fulfillment um, shankaracharya raises this question in the bhagavad gita you'll see second chapter when arjun asks the question what is the nature of the enlightened one sthita pragya how do, how does such a one meditate how does such a one walk talk interact with others and uh, krishna says prajahati yada kaman sarvan partham anugatan who gives up all desires of the heart and is um, so the question is raised by shankaracharya if you give up all desires but satisfaction fulfillment happiness comes in fulfillment of desires i have desires xyz and if i fulfill them one after another then i'm getting more and more satisfaction this seems to be the philosophy of life whether you think about it or especially if you don't think about it this is the way life goes flows so isn't this uh, if you give up all the desires then 
what will happen to that person? There will be no fulfillment. There will be unhappiness. The next line, Atmaniyavatmanatushta, he says, Stitapragya, you are stabilized wisdom. You are centered in Brahman when you are fully satisfied by the Atman, by the reality, by existence consciousness, by your own limitlessness. The reason why we are unsatisfied. Buddhists call these hungry ghosts. We are like hungry ghosts. Why we are unsatisfied is we feel keenly our limitedness. One more thing. One little more money, better job, better position, a little more recognition, a little more love in this world, then I will be happy. You won't be. This is a hard lesson to learn. Nobody has a, ever has been. Look at the data in the world. Nobody ever has been. Temporarily you might be. For a few hours, few days, few weeks, that's it. Not more than that. Even the emperors have not been. The, the Nobel Prize winners, the superstars in Hollywood and Bollywood, no. Usually it's the other way around. They give the example of a crow sitting on a high building perched on the top of a tower in the windy place, you know, and it's barely hanging on. Who told you to sit there? <laughs> Getting continuously blown up by the gale. So that's the problem with uh, attaining any high position there if you are looking for satisfaction from that. If you're not looking, you'll be perfectly comfortable on the throne and in the hut of a beggar also. You'll be perfectly comfortable. There have been philosopher emperors. I've seen in a couple of cases extraordinarily rich people, heads of companies, but very philosophical, very calm. They, are, they do not derive their satisfaction from their position or money or power. And that's a good position to be in. But notice, you don't need that position, power and money also to be in that position. You can be perfectly alright as you are. Uh, is, did I answer that question? Thank you so much. Very good. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna, the Holy Mother, Swami Vivekananda to bless all of us. May that wisdom dawn upon us in this very life. May we be centered in reality. May our hearts be full of devotion. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu